0: The city of Edmonton claims that Indigenous women shot and killed by police caused her own death. Researchers release data about death in the presence of police in Canada. The federal government interferes in Canada's drug regulator. And the Canadian press does PR for Galen Weston. Good morning. It's Friday, February 24th, I'm Nora and here are your headlines. <laughs> We start this morning with two stories about police violence. Look, when I started this project, I really didn't think that there would be so many stories to talk about about police murdering people. But alas, here we are. Shane McGee at CBC New Brunswick is reporting that the city of Edmonston and the police officer who murdered Chantal Moore are arguing that Moore had died as a result of her own actions and not by police negligence. The claim is a statement of defense filed in response to a lawsuit that had been launched last year by Martha Martin, the mother of Chantel Moore. She argued that the city had failed, quote, to adequately train its officers to safely respond to wellness checks, especially to ones where an Indigenous person is involved. Jeremy's son is arguing that he shot Moore in self-defense because she, quote, unquote, came towards him while holding a knife on the balcony of the apartment that she was in. The city and Sun argue that by coming towards a police officer while holding a knife, she caused her own death. This, of course, assumes a lot about how reasonable Moore had the capacity to even be that evening. There was a wellness check that was called on her. Then Sun found himself standing on her balcony. Why was he there in the first place if he feared for his life? Why did he come to her window and start waking her up by knocking after seeing that she was asleep on the couch? When she woke up, it was when she grabbed the knife and approached son. There are so many questions in this that it seems so ridiculous that he and the city would argue this and put the family through this nightmare. Moore died within days of the death of another Indigenous person, Rodney Levi, in eastern New Brunswick. The two deaths triggered a wave of calls for police reform, especially when interacting with Indigenous people. Now, it isn't just what we know from the news about what happened that night. There was also a coroner's inquest into Moore's death. They ruled that, quote, her manner of death was a homicide, unquote. But this decision didn't move the Public Prosecution Service of New Brunswick to lay charges against Sun. They didn't think that they had a reasonable prospect of a conviction based on the evidence. Now to zoom out more broadly, a group of university researchers has been tracking the number of times someone has died as a result of a police encounter in Canada. Shockingly, this data is not currently collected. The researchers found that 704 people had been killed in an interaction with police since the year 2000. This is almost three deaths per month on average. But since 2018, these numbers have spiked. In 2019, there were 34 deaths, and in 2022, there were 69. Joanne McIsaac, who has fought for years for more transparency for police-related deaths after her brother was killed by police, told CBC, quote, When government can tell you how many moose there are on the island of Newfoundland, but they can't tell you how many people have lost their lives at the hand of police, yeah, I think that this is an intentional omission, unquote. The article also makes the point that Black and Indigenous people are proportionally represented in the data, and this is why it's even more important to collect this data officially to see the differential impact that policing has. The unbylined article quotes Scott Mills from the Ontario Provincial Police Association, who has literally nothing useful to say at all about the issue, and makes me wonder why his quotes were even included. He said that police do not go to work wanting to shoot someone and that they are, quote, highly trained in de-escalation techniques, unquote. Not only is that not true in the context of what we're talking about, there are people being murdered by police and whether or not they're highly trained in de-escalation techniques, that's not working in these cases by definition. His comments don't obviously answer anything about what the article says or the issues it raises. And then get this, this is how he concludes. Quote, it should be really pointed out here that a lot of these violent confrontations, they're from the public. They're from calls for service. The police don't ask to go here. They were invited to go to these situations because they were out of control in the first place. Ah, so really, the police perspective on all of this is it's the public's fault for calling them. And next, an investigation from Kelly Crow at the independent news outlet, The Breach, They found that after drug industry lobbying, the federal government has intervened in the federal drug regulator to ask them to stop a policy reform process that was intended to drop the prices of drugs that Canadians buy. Minister of Health and my local MP, Jean-Yves Duclos, wrote a letter to the acting chair of a group called the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board. He asked for the consultation process that was set in motion to look for ways to reduce prices in drugs to be suspended. Crow writes that there was only a few days left in the consultations. Duclos wrote, quote, "Many stakeholders have raised concerns and questions about the new guidelines and are seeking more information on the potential impacts and the implementation of certain key technical aspects." You should definitely check out this investigation. It's detailed and really gets into the weeds on the relationship between the drug price regulator, the pharmaceutical industry, and the government. The investigation dropped on February 20th, which was on Monday. But that same day, Matthew Herter, who's a member of the drug price regulator, tendered his resignation. He posted publicly about it yesterday. His letter confirms many of the details in Crow's investigation, but adds a lot of detail. Some of the points of the letter are this. There is supposed to be an industry target of 10% of its spending on research and development. This is critical for many reasons. Creating generic drugs, developing new generic drugs, developing new drugs. This all creates jobs for people with PhDs and masters. It fosters a Canadian research and development drug industry. It creates innovation driven by our local issues and so on. But... The industry has not been able to hit this target for 20 years. Herder says that last year, only 3.4% of the industry spending had been spent on R&D. Next, patent and medicines in Canada are the third highest in the world, he notes, he cites delays, a refusal to defend Canada's position in court and the government having, quote, undermined the board's independence and credibility, unquote, as all sources for his concern. I'll end with Herder's words, because I think that when we're talking about the crisis in healthcare, a lot of politicians and industry people and doctors sometimes make it sound like it is so complicated and the answers are so difficult to implement that if we don't go the way of just privatizing certain parts of the industry, we just won't get the healthcare that we need. But Herter lays things out very, very plainly here. In his resignation letter, he concludes with this, quote, Canadian health care is in crisis. Jurisdictional issues complicate the federal government's ability to intervene. That the federal government is unwilling to support real change in a domain where its jurisdiction over patented medicines cannot be questioned, and those same medicines are the fastest growing contributor to the rising costs of health care, is deeply disappointing. I'll also just salute Herder's Courage for resigning. That kind of thing is absolutely what we need to do in this country if we want to try and make change. And finally, more national news. Yesterday, I'm sure you all saw the news that Loblaws is swimming in profits after their fourth quarter results were announced. Their fourth quarter profits were $529 million. Now, this is down from quarter four results in 2021, where they made $744 million. But my God, folks, this is still a lot of money. The Canadian press, I'm going to be quoting from a specific article. They do note that the 2021 amount included a payout related to a Supreme Court decision that awarded Loblaws $301 million. So really, the profits weren't exactly down. But this article, Canadian Press's Brent Bundell, either trying to get a different angle than the tired story of greedflation or in an act of laundering the reputation of Galen Weston, wrote a piece titled, quote, Lobla facing over 1000 supplier requests for fresh price hikes. Galen G. Weston. Very, very interesting for this article from the Canadian Press to focus on Galen Weston saying that Loblaws has pressure to increase prices. More than 1,000 suppliers are requesting the ability to increase prices, says Galen Weston, the day that the news comes out that they made $1.9 billion in 2022. In fact, it takes six paragraphs to even get to the news about the earnings at all in this article. Rather than talking about the earnings, which is, of course, the hook to the news, it's the only reason why this news is being talked about at all, The article leads with this question of suppliers, indicating that, of course, inflation is going to rise as Weston has to balance the requests that he's getting from suppliers to increase their money. It's a fascinating little piece of corporate propaganda, as Bundle could have just as easily talked to a cashier or a local union president or the president of UFCW or Unifor who represents staff at some Loblaw-owned stores. But instead, the article is front-ended with a woe-is-me take from Galen Weston. Anyway, Loblaws is making tons of money and every time you go to the grocery store, you should ask yourself, does Weston enjoy that you feel pain? (laughs) Of course he does. He's making money off of it. But for the Canadian press, I mean, super, super weak to have an article about how much money we're all giving to Loblaw in profits and then blame it on the suppliers asking for increased costs. It's especially bad form because... These two things don't actually go together because Loblaws was still making net profits of $1.9 billion. That is all for me today, and it's Friday. So, for the week, I hope you had a great week. I hope you have a good weekend. And in case you haven't found this yet, I've been doing weekly digests of all the news that I cover on the daily news hits. It's over at my Substack, which is just norloretto.substack, whatever, you can Google it. And at Substack, you can just see the 24 or 28 stories from the previous week that I went through. If you're an avid listener or if you listen only once in a while, the digest is a good reminder for you to go back and check out some of the stories if you have a minute. Or, of course, it's a really easy thing to share with all of your friends and family who might be fed up with the news that they've been getting and who isn't. We should all be fed up with the news that we're getting. I hope you have a good weekend and I'll talk to you on the other side.